The book of 2 Samuel records the history of Israel around 3,000 years ago. But it's not just for people who like history. It turns out the history we find in 2 Samuel is pretty exciting at times. There are cliffhangers and betrayals and double agents. And okay, there aren't any car chases, but there is a mule chase which is nearly as good. But 2 Samuel isn't just for people who like soap operas or thrillers either. This is a book for everyone. And the reason is, this book is not just about the Middle East 3,000 years ago. It shows us timeless truths. It presents us with things that apply to all times and places and peoples. It's worth remembering that as we come to our passage this morning, because this morning we're going to see the end of an Antichrist. I need to explain that to you. The Old Testament was already originally written in the Hebrew language, and the Hebrew word Messiah means anointed one. In Greek, the language of the New Testament, the word Christ means anointed one. The Messiah, or the Christ, is the king God has put in place. Anyone who opposes God's king is therefore an anti-Christ. Not only is that person opposing God's king, they're opposing God himself, the one who anointed the king. And back in 1 Samuel, in the days before Israel even had a king, we were told very clearly how things end up for every antichrist. A lady called Hannah prayed to God, and here is the climax of her prayer. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. In Hebrew, the last word there is Messiah. And the message is, no matter how strong the opposition, it will be broken. God will give victory to his Messiah. That's what exalt the horn means. It's a picture of a wild animal standing tall and victorious over its enemies. It's horn up in the air. That promise of victory came at the start of 1 Samuel. But we are now in 2 Samuel. And we've seen Absalom rise up in rebellion against his father David. At this point in history, David is God's Christ his anointed king. And that makes Absalom an antichrist. And he is a powerful antichrist. But last week, we saw Absalom's power begin to wobble. On the outside, things look just as impressive as ever for Absalom. In fact, we'll see his following is continuing to grow. But last week, we saw one of Absalom's greatest strengths disappear. Absalom rejected the advice of a man called Ahithophel. 
Ahithophel was Israel's master tactician. The text told us people treated Ahithophel's counsel as if it came from God. It was that good. And in this case, if Absalom had followed Ahithophel's counsel, he would have beaten David. But instead, Absalom, we saw, followed some bogus advice. That advice came from David's undercover agent, a man called Hushai. And we were told that curious decision by Absalom to reject Ahithophel's advice and follow Hushai's, that decision was no accident. We were told the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. That's what Hannah prayed, and it's true. Ahithophel's advice was good in the sense that it would have worked for Absalom. But he didn't take that advice. And in the wake of that rejection of Ahithophel's advice, Ahithophel went home and committed suicide. That's where we left it last week. Absalom's Antichrist rebellion looks to be stronger than ever. But it's already beginning to die from the inside out. And this morning we pick up as Absalom leads his army after David. We're going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 24, through to chapter 18, verse 18. You'll find that in the Church Bibles on page 322, or in the large print 496. Beginning at, beginning at chapter 17, verse 24. David went to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Absalom had appointed Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Amasa was the son of Jether, an Ishmaelite who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, and sister of Zeruiah, the mother of Joab. The Israelites and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shubi, son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, son of Amiel from Lodibar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep, and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. For they said, the people have become exhausted and hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruiah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the man said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. 
So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king, giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There, Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now, Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair, while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I've just seen Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy, and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I am not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart, while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. This is God's word. To begin with in this passage, we get a description of two camps. Last week, we saw David and his men cross the Jordan River. So far, their journey has taken them from Jerusalem across the Jordan, that's the blue line above the Dead Sea, to their camp at Mahanaim, which means two camps. It's about 30 miles from the river. David, you remember, was only able to get this far because God frustrated the advice given by Ahithophel. Ahithophel planned to lead a quick attack that would have killed David before he even crossed the river. If Absalom had followed that advice, David would be dead. But instead, Absalom followed the plan of Hushai, who, as we've seen, was working for David. Hushai came up with a plan that played to Absalom's vanity. He argued it was much better to wait in Jerusalem and gather a much larger army. 
And then Absalom could ride out in front of it in glory and majesty and crush David. Absalom liked that plan. He liked it because it made him look good. And that's all Absalom really ever cared about. But the plan worked in David's favor. Because while Absalom delayed in Jerusalem, David lived to fight another day. He made it across the river, and he had time then to organize his own army for battle. But now, in chapter 17, verse 24, we're told that while David is at Mahanaim, Absalom himself crosses the Jordan with all the men of Israel, meaning all the men of Israel who are with Absalom. We know at least some of them are with David. But by putting it this way, it's emphasizing how much more are with Absalom. Down in verse 26, we're told, the Israelites and Absalom camped. And later, in chapter 18, verse 6, we're told, David's army went to fight against Israel. So the nation of Israel might not all have rejected David, but the majority of them have. Despite what we saw last week with Ahithophel's suicide, the kingdom of Antichrist is very much alive here. It seems to be more powerful than ever. No doubt Absalom's camp is buzzing. Their leader looks great. He always has. And he's promised these people everything they want. We know he's the most handsome man in Israel and we know he's been telling everyone in Israel their claims are valid and proper. So if he was in charge, people would have everything they wanted. Absalom's camp is bigger. No doubt it looks better. But we're given more detail here about David's camp. And what we find is, despite the enemies all around, God is providing for his people. He's sustaining his people, those who are loyal to his king. We're told here about three men who bring supplies. And to realize how significant that is, remember the hurry David was in when he left Jerusalem. There was no time to organize supplies or even to carry supplies. And now they're camped in this out-of-the-way place, across the Jordan. The text even describes it as wilderness. Some of you may have seen the recent BBC series, War and Peace. One of the things in that story that was true to history was the way the Russian army defeated Napoleon. They abandoned the city of Moscow and allowed Napoleon to march in there unopposed with his massive army. And then the Russians just waited. Whenever winter came, Napoleon had no way to feed his army. He ended up having to pack up and go home in disgrace. What that illustrates is that when an army is on foreign soil, maybe its biggest challenge is finding supplies. And here in the wilderness, David's camp is supplied with 
Look in verse 28. Bedding and bowls and articles of pottery, wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from cow's milk. It's lavish provision. And all of it is coming from unlikely sources. Verse 27 mentions Shobi of the Ammonites. Shobi's brother was Hanun, king of the Ammonites. He was an enemy of David. And Machir and Barzillai are not people we would expect to be supporting David either. Machir has connections with Saul's family. But these men are not only forsaking old allegiances to side with David, they're actually going out on a limb. Judging by numbers, David's side looks like the losing side. Absalom's setup looks much more impressive. But these men choose God's Christ over Antichrist. God uses them to provide for his faithful people. Maybe David had this particular situation in mind when he wrote Psalm 23. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. God's people are those who side with God's king. And their experience has always been God provides for his people. And he's present with his people. Even in the wilderness. Even surrounded by powerful, popular enemies. So when we talk today about taking up our cross and following King Jesus... When we talk about giving our lives to him rather than to the attractive alternatives that are around us. When we talk about taking up our cross, please don't think following Jesus is a grim, gray kind of life. As if it's, well, it's rubbish now, but it'll be good in heaven, I suppose. It's not like that. Of course, it is hard going against the crowd. But the blessing and joy are not all in the future. God does really provide for us here and now. He blesses us with his goodness and love, even in the presence of our enemies. If you and I will take the time just to stop and think about it, every single one of us can say, my cup overflows. That's not always because God's blessing is going to take the form of food supplies the way it did for David here. But when we side with God's Messiah, he will always give us some kind of feast in the wilderness. His goodness and love will follow us every day. Our trouble is, often we're too busy looking across at the enemy camp to notice what God has given us. Next time you find yourself intimidated by God's enemies, or maybe even envious of them, 
take a moment to remember who is with you. Take a moment to remember all the ways that he cares for you and where he has promised to lead you in the end to eternal pleasures at his right hand. Back at Mahanaim, David's camp is well supplied from unlikely sources. But at this point, it is not at all obvious David is going to win. But still, he organizes his army as best he can. He divides them into three companies under three commanders, Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. And David himself prepares to lead the army. But look how they react to this idea. In chapter 18, verse 3, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. 10,000 may actually be the total size of David's army. If that's the case, it's still smaller than the army Absalom had to begin with before he gathered the even bigger one he has now. In any case, the man convinced David he needs to stay in the camp. The kingdom will fall if he falls. But notice what David does as the army marches out in verse 5. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king, giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. What should we make of these words from David? Well, it reminds us how complicated this whole situation is. It reminds us Absalom is both the king's rival and the king's son. It's no surprise David is a bit conflicted. But it's very odd to send your army out against rebels and tell them, crush the rebellion but don't harm the leader. Next week, the passage will focus in on this conflict within David. And so for the moment, we can just notice what he says and move on. David's army marches out without him. And its mission is to defeat this Antichrist rebellion. Whatever David's personal feelings are, they are not going to affect this battle because David will not be part of it. Absalom's rebellion has gathered huge momentum. It's attracted a huge following, all centered on this persuasive celebrity leader. But now it all comes to an inglorious end. David's army is by far the smaller, as we've seen. But they don't allow Absalom's army to fight them head on. They're smart. Remember, David has split his army in three. That will divide Absalom's army three ways. And because of Absalom's delay in coming after David, David has been able to choose the site for the battle. Verse 6 says it took place in the forest of Ephraim. That was not an accident. Fighting in the forest confuses things. 
It's hard for troops to stay together. They get spread out. That dilutes the advantage of Absalom's numbers. His troops will be easily ambushed, easily picked off among the trees. David's army have done their homework. They are able to dictate when and how the fighting happens. And they win easily. After all, the build-up to this battle over several chapters, it's actually reported for us in just two verses. Verse 7. There Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. The battle itself is not the main focus here. And so after that little summary of the outcome, the text then zooms in on just one man. David's men realized their success depended on their king. And it works the other way too. The success of the rebellion depends on its king. And remember, in his pride, Absalom has ridden at the head of this great army. He must have looked so impressive as he arrived with his armor and his hair, especially quaffed for the occasion. But it's hard to imagine a more undignified end to it all. Absalom, we're told, is on his mule. It's not clear if he's charging towards David's troops or away from them. But at some point he must have looked over his shoulder and smack. His head is caught in the fork of some tree branches. He's stuck. The mule rides on. Absalom is left dangling in midair. Literally, the text says, he is hanging between heaven and earth. It's a very unusual way to put it. The poster boy of Israel is like a fly in a spider's web. Helpless. We don't know how long he hangs there. But eventually word gets to Joab. And Joab, as we would expect, doesn't hesitate. He brushes off the concerns of the men about David's request to be gentle with Absalom. And verse 14 says, Joab took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And then Joab's armor bearers step in and finish Absalom off. Absalom longed for glory. He promised glory to his followers. But this is an inglorious end. Hanging from a tree, alone, pierced by his enemies, while his army melts away, fleeing back to their homes. This Antichrist rebellion started with a bang. Trumpets were blown throughout all Israel. It started with a great fanfare, but it ends with a whimper, snuffed out in a moment. And if you and I read on in our Bibles, we discover that is how every Antichrist rebellion will end. 
Every power that stands against God's Messiah will come to an inglorious end. Whatever it might promise, it will deliver a pathetic anticlimax. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, describes a series of antichrist rebellions all through history, climaxing in a final worldwide rebellion. That rebellion, we're told, grows in strength. The kings of the earth and their armies gather to fight and to overthrow Jesus the Christ. It all seems so impressive, so overwhelmingly powerful. But as Revelation describes it, it's over in a moment. The rebellion ends with a whimper, just like Absalom's. That's how it will end for every enemy of God's Christ. Whether it's an individual who scoffs at Jesus or simply denies him his rightful place as Lord of their life. Or whether it's a regime that tries to stamp out Christianity. Whatever form the rebellion takes, however strong and self-assured that rebellion seems to be now, It will end with defeat and obscurity. That point is made even clearer at the end of our passage. Having started out with two camps, we end with two monuments. Both of them are monuments to Absalom. One is how Absalom wanted to be remembered, The other is how he actually is remembered. Look first at the monument Absalom wanted for himself in verse 18. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. For he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Earlier in the book, we were told Absalom did have sons born to him. But this verse implies they all died young. And so he built this monument to himself. And he put it in the king's valley, just outside Jerusalem. The trouble is, Absalom never was king. Yes, he marched into Jerusalem as if he was king, as if he owned the place. But it never became reality. It's a bit like the father of a school friend of mine. He had this big silver trophy sitting in his living room with his name on it. When I first saw it, I was very impressed. This guy must be really good at something. I was impressed until I found out he'd bought that trophy himself. He'd had his own name engraved on it himself. Then, well, it just seemed pathetic. Absalom did pretty much the same thing. This pillar in the king's valley sums him up. He was all image and show. But there was no substance there. 
There was no reality behind his display. Absalom wanted to go down in history as a hero. This was the monument he wanted for himself. He put it up before the battle in the forest. It was an anticipation of the great legacy he was going to leave. But look at the monument Absalom actually got. Back in verse 17, we're told, after they killed him in the tree, they took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. He wanted to be remembered by the pillar in the king's valley. He is remembered by a pit and a pile of rocks hidden away in the forest. That is how human pride ends up. When human beings defy God's king because they want to be king themselves, the end of it all is not glory. It's shame and obscurity. During his lifetime, Absalom tried to define himself as a great man. But he is forever remembered as an enemy of God. In life, he managed to keep up his impressive image. But his death showed the reality. This kind of rock pile monument had a history in Israel. It was used commonly for those who defied God. We often find it in the book of Joshua. So the monument Absalom gets is not an accident. Those who did it knew the message they were sending. Here lies an enemy of the Lord and his people. The Bible comes back to this theme again and again. We've seen how it appears in the book of Revelation. Revelation deals with large-scale rebellions against God, nations and regimes that defy him. But the point applies equally to individual rebels, anyone who seeks glory for themselves rather than God, anyone who wants to be their own king rather than bowing to God's king. But the sad Irony is, a life lived that way doesn't end with the glory we want. It ends with shame and defeat. We end up bearing the punishment for our rebellion. We end up eternally crushed under the weight of it. Those who oppose the Lord and his king will be broken. That's true whether your opposition is loud and proud, like Absalom's, or whether you're just quietly defiant. It ends with defeat. But it doesn't have to be that way. You may have noticed as we read through this, the death of Absalom the Antichrist wasn't much different from the death of Jesus the Christ. Jesus was hung on a tree. He was suspended between heaven and earth, just like Absalom the rebel. 
Jesus was pierced there by his enemies. And after death, he was given a tomb in a rock. Jesus the Christ died the death of the rebel. He submitted to the death all of us deserve. And he did it for us. Today, his monument is a cross. And it's easy to forget that is an emblem of shame. I know people wear gold crosses today on gold chains. But it was the greatest humiliation to die on a cross. And yet Jesus went there to lift us up from shame and humiliation. And then God raised him. After the cross, he exalted his anointed one, just as scripture said he would. So if you are trusting in Jesus, thank God for him. Thank God he took your place. You and I are rebels. We deserve to go the way Absalom did. But Jesus went that way in our place. Thank God he took your place. And thank God he rose never to die again. When we follow Jesus, he provides for us today a table, even in the presence of our enemies. And one day we will share in his final victory. But if you haven't bowed to Jesus as king, please consider where that puts you. It puts you with those who are anti-Christ. You may not think of yourself that way. Very few people do. But that is how the Bible describes you. Don't go on like that. Don't follow the crowd. If you do, you will end up crushed with the enemies of God. You have an opportunity today to come and bow before the one who was crushed in your place. We need to respond to what we've heard.